Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Today's reading is from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plan? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that um, we come together today um, because of what your word, um, through your spirit, has declared to our hearts. Lord, it's, it's easy to read. It's easy to see with our eyes. Um, but would you allow us to, to hear and to see with our hearts um, what your word is, is saying to us? Um, thank you that we can be reminded this morning that, that none of us have come to know you um, apart from your word. Um, you speak to us uh, through your word, and, and we line up everything that we um, hear and believe um, against your word. Um, and so thank you that, that uh, really what is happening here as we read and, and teach your word, that uh, we, we're reminded of, of the place um, where, where any faith or, or any grace that we've experienced, and we're reminded of the place where it began. Um, and it's in your word. And so may we understand and embrace the fact and the truth today um, that your word, that you want to, you are, you are still speaking to us through your word, that we do not comprehend everything, um, that we, we do not comprehend everything we need yet. Um, and we, we embrace also that we will not fully understand um, until, until we're with you. Um, but, but Lord, you do have something today that you want to teach us, something you want to show us, and I pray, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, before we, before we get seated, man, you're just like, oh, we're really doing this. Just turn around and say hey to somebody. We'll, we'll spend like 30 seconds doing this. Just say hello to someone.
All right. Hey, thanks for welcoming one another, saying hello to someone. Now's the fun part of getting, getting everybody wrangled back in. Have you guys seen uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Um, I, I wish I would have looked up the, the character's name, uh, but you know the little girl that's there with her dad who's just always throwing a fit? Reminds me, what's her name? Hold on, one person. Veruca Salt. You know, she's just like always stamping around and kicking. As I was saying this week, as I, as, I, as I read the verse, do you do well to be angry? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry. Reminds me of Veruca Salt. So would have had the clip today. Um, but here we are in Jonah chapter four, wrapping up um, the book um, and what the Lord is communicating to us and showing us in this text is extremely profound. Um, And so I just want to tee it up like that. But before we get started, um, a a recap. We've recapped this way every week. We've done so intentionally uh, because each week I hope it makes a little bit more and more sense. And it's basically this summary, that Jonah is not ultimately a story about a fish, a story about a prophet, a city, or a sea. Um, it's a story about God. Have we, are we starting to kind of see that a little bit, that this is a story that God is communicating something to us about himself? And we're actually going to see that um, in even more uh, profound of a way in the way that this book ends today. And so this is a story um, about a God um, who is compassionate, um, who, who pursues us, who is merciful, and at nearly every turn in the book, in this story, is, is offering and making a way of salvation. And so we're gonna continue to just see that point reinforced, that, that the main miracle in the story, for those of you who took the little pop quiz at the beginning of the series, write down everything that you know about this book. Um, one thing that I want us to, to add to our um, drawer of, 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 of ideas and facts that we know about this book is that the main miracle in the story is not a, a man eating fish, but a man saving God. Um, that, that the miracle is not about uh, this fish that ate this man, but it, that, that spit him up on, on, the, on the shore, which is extreme, an extreme miracle. But the miracle that we are to see in this book is that there is a holy God that, that, that saves wicked humanity. That's a, that's a miraculous thing. And so this God, as we have seen in the story, he saves and he spares both the, the weak and the helpless, but we also see him saving and sparing the strong and the mighty. And so he, he has mercy towards the wicked Ninevites, who, who, spiritually speaking, are the weak and helpless, even though, worldly speaking, they're the strong and the mighty, right? They're the ones that no one can really compete against. But spiritually speaking, they are the, they are the, the, the weak. They are the, the weak and the helpless. And you have Jonah, who's this prophet, who we would assume is the strong and the mighty. But spiritually, it seems that, at least in some places throughout this book, those roles, characteristics are flip-flopped. But God is saving both the weak and the helpless and the strong and the mighty. And so let's read together verses one through four. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. um, And we encourage you every week um, to read along and to follow with us because there are going to be some things this morning that we don't hit on. 
There are going to be things that we don't have time necessarily to hit on. And so if you're reading, you have your eyes on the book, if, if, if you want to mark in those Bibles and the seats in front of you, you're welcome to. If you want to circle something or underline something, say, I need to come back to this later because we didn't quite address it today. That would be very helpful for you. So let's read verses one through four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well? to be angry. And so up to this point, and even in today's text, Jonah certainly has some concept of the mercy of God. He has some concept of the mercy of God. And so we've seen up to this point and in this passage that, that, that his understanding of mercy is at least there a little bit because he writes an amazing worship song in chapter two, right? We kind of talked about the psalm that Jonah pens and writes and thanks the Lord for his, for his deliverance and the salvation that he experienced. So Jonah writes this amazing worship song. In fact, in this song that Jonah writes, he writes one of the, the fundamental truths about God is in all of scripture, that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. And so Jonah understands, at least at some level, the mercy of God. But we also have Jonah's acknowledgement in this very chapter of, in, in, in verse two, um, where, where he says, um, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is Jonah quoting what God says in Exodus chapter 34, that God is coming to his people and revealing to the people who he is, that this is who I am, that I am a, 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 a God who is gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. But also we see that Jonah's a prophet. So Jonah knows something about the mercy of God. He knows the right things and he says the right words, but here's the thing that we need to see. Jonah's concept of mercy is limited. And it's limited because he knows what it means so far as it means something for his own personal salvation and deliverance. What, what Jonah seems to be unable to reckon with in regards to mercy is that the same mercy and salvation that has come to him is available also to his enemies. And so he has, like a, he has a small picture and understanding of what mercy is because he cannot reckon with this fact that God would show mercy to his enemies. And so Jonah in these verses dives straight back into belligerent mode, right? Like he is just, he is just not holding back. He is angry. He's angry enough in this text, enough to even wish that he were dead. He says, Lord, just, just kill me. So angry is Jonah at what God has done in saving the Ninevites. So the, the verse one says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What does it say that displeased him? Well, if we go to the chapter before, the salvation of the Ninevites, the mercy of God that he had towards the Ninevites. And so, so angry is Jonah at what God has done in saving the Ninevites that, that literally what this text says in the original language is that it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That, that what God had done, that Jonah was so angry about, that, that Jonah viewed God's mercy towards the Ninevites as a wicked thing. Hey, that's a 
really scary thing, by the way, for, uh, listen, God can handle our questions and our doubts. Really deeply believe that. If you don't, just go to the Psalms. This is why we need to be so, uh, so um, in cahoots with the book of Psalms, because this book of Psalms is going to, to show us the spectrum of the emotions that we feel and the fact that God can, can handle the questions. But it's, a, it's kind of a, a little bit of like a, a, a freaky place to be in when, when you are looking at the work of God and, and calling it evil, when, when you ascribe to God's work wickedness. And so he was just so angry at this. It's also in this opening group of, of verses that tell us something very important about Jonah's obedience. So Jonah has obeyed the Lord, right? He's obeyed. He went to Nineveh. He did what he was called to do. But, but, but let me set it up this way. Let me set up why this is so important in this way. There are two types of obedience. There may be more, but there are two types of obedience. There is, is a begrudging obedience or, or like a dutiful obedience or an external obedience. That's one kind of obedience. The other side of obedience is a joyful obedience or a, or a delightful obedience or an internal obedience. And so I, I know there was like three, you know, three words in each of those two, but let's just break it down to, to begrudging obedience against joyful obedience. There are two kinds of obedience. If you're a parent, <laughs> you've probably experienced this, right? Um, there's a kind of obedience done from a, from a heart of joy um, and delight, and there's a kind of obedience that is begrudging or dutiful. Now, those of you who are parents, um, let's be honest, um, on any given day, we'll take either one of those kinds of obedience, right? Like, hey, just do what I said. But in the end, what our aim is as, as parents or what our aim is as, as people who are, who are making disciples is ultimately an obedience that flows from the heart, right? Ultimately, that's what our, our goal is. And so like a begrudging obedience not, may, may not only reveal something to us about our children, that they're wicked little sinners, right? Um, but it may also actually reveal to us something about ourselves because there are times where, we, we do just expect our children to, to do what we said we should do. But God, by the way, and by the way, I don't wanna say external obedience is never good. Sometimes, sometimes we, we do what God says because God said to do it. And we believe that he will be faithful in changing our hearts in those ways. But what we are after is an obedience that comes from a delight. And we want to be, we want to be the kind of people who, whose laws are not too heavy, that's what, we, that's what we learn about God all throughout the scriptures, that, that it's actually, his laws are actually good for us. Parents, we could admit that not everything we've ever told our children to do is, is actually good. We may think it's good, but we come back and we realize, oh, we're wicked sinners too. And, and I didn't, I, I maybe set the bar too high. But this is what our goal is, that, that a cold obedience is not ultimately what we are after. And so as most of you know, and most of you can probably see where we're going with this, you won't be surprised that the fact is that God is after the same kind of obedience in us. God is after the same kind of obedience, a joyful delight in him rather than this cold obedience. The story of Jonah is a story about God, as we have said and as we're gonna see more in a moment, but it also serves to tell us something about ourselves. 
The story of Jonah is telling us something about ourselves. And so if you're like me, as you're reading through the book of Jonah or, or hearing what, what's going on in Jonah, you just find yourself over and over again recoiling and wincing at the actions and behaviors of Jonah. Like, remember we've talked about this, like Jonah is just the worst. He's like that little girl on Willy Wonka. Like, just go into the chocolate river and never come back, right? Like, just, you, you just don't know what to do with this person. But the truth is, is that even though this is a, primarily a story about God, it also tells us something about ourselves. It's revealing to us something about ourselves. And this is what I mean by that. It's easy for many of us. It's easy for, for us to fall into this, this way or this, this line of thinking that obedience to God just means doing what God says. That obedience to God is just about doing what God says. And so to put it in the way that we've framed so far, we tend, we tend to think that obedience to God is our duty and that sheer obedience of the will is all that God is after. And some of us, it's, it's obvious that we believe that because of the way that we, we respond to God and the way that we, that we behave and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the ways that we feel if we, if we mess up or, or, or do something. And so we kind of get into this frame of mind that God is just after our dutiful obedience and not our hearts. And so in this way, so many of us are not really unlike Jonah. So Jonah is like, I went to Nineveh. I, I preached what you told me to preach. Are you happy now? That's what Jonah's saying here to the Lord. Are you, are you happy that I did what you've asked me to do? And so here's what the story of Jonah teaches you and me, though, about obedience. And we can't miss this because this is the, really the point of today's sermon. Obedience is not merely doing what God says. Obedience is seeing the way that God sees and loving the way that God loves. You hear that? Let me say that again. Obedience is not only about doing what God says, but seeing the way that God sees and loving the way God loves. We're gonna see that in the text. You need to know something this morning, church family. We need to know this and to understand this and feel this, that God is not after your dutiful, bare minimum obedience. That's not what he wants. He is after your heart a heart that would see the world the way that he sees and a, and, a, and a heart that would love the world the way that he loves the world. And so what this dutiful obedience is often connected with is really an idea that's rooted in religion. And so this idea of I obey, therefore I'm accepted. So we obey for acceptance. That, you know what that is? That is a, that is a strictly religious mindset that is that is not connected in any way to the gospel. Here's what joyful obedience is rooted in. I am accepted, therefore I, I obey. You kind of see the distinction there? One, one of those obediences, the dutiful obedience, is, is obedience for the approval of God. The, the, the joyful obedience is obedience from the approval of God. You understand that? Do we, somebody sh shake your head. It, it, you, may not, you may not agree, uh, but, but shake your if you understand kind of what we're getting at, that, that a dutiful obedience is for God's approval, joyful obedience is from God's approval. Man, as a parent, I love it when my children obey me because they know that I delight in them and they know that what I am telling them is best for them, right? Rather than I better obey dad or he's going to put me in a headlock and give me a noogie, right? Like, by the way, I, Noogie, who does that anymore, right? You'd probably have the cops called on you today. And so this is what we see at the heart of Jonah. 
and, and what, what, what God is going after in this text. So again, Jonah's like, I did the thing you wanted. I didn't quite get what I was hoping for. Now just kill me. This isn't, this isn't often an explicit or obvious way that we relate to God, but it is so often where we find ourselves in relation to God. And it is a way of following Jesus that is strictly transactional. We wanna know what the, what the minimum is to do in order to fulfill your obligation to God. And God is saying, I want all of you. That's why Jesus is gonna come back later in Matthew, which we're going to in a few, a few weeks. Um, this is why Jesus is coming in and say, hey, listen, you've kept, you know, you kept your physical eyes pure, but your heart is wicked, you have sinned. You have, you've, uh, you've not killed anybody, but you hate your brother, then you are guilty of murder. And so what God is saying here is like, the bare minimum obedience is not what I'm after. I want all of you, I want your heart. How many of you have, have ever called AT&T or Cox um, and said, I want faster internet speed for less money? This is, this is the way that we interact with God. We, we, it, it's a transactional relationship where we, where we call the, the, the one providing the good or the service uh, for, for less um, of an investment on our side. And we treat God so many times the same exact way. I go to church. Man, I showed up, God. What are you gonna do for me now? I showed up. I attended, I, I gave, I, I did all of those things. What will you do for me now, Lord? You owe me something. And this is this kind of obedience I hope that we can see is, is not an obedience that brings glory to God. It's just not. It's not an obedience that glorifies God. And, it's, and, and guess what too? Like this is maybe less important, but it's, but it's something that God is after. It's not only an obedience that doesn't bring glory to God, it's also an, an, an obedience that doesn't bring joy to us. It doesn't actually bring joy to us. It makes us little busybodies and, and like, what do I gotta do next to please the Lord? But no, there's just this, this thing about obeying the Lord out of a, a joyful and a delightful obedience that both glorifies him and brings joy to us. Anyone, anyone, and so, so what, what Jonah doesn't understand here is that, is that anyone can offer to God a dutiful obedience. Anyone can do that. I mean, literally, I can, I can go out and there, there are people in this world today that they do not believe or trust in the Lord, but they're rule followers still, nonetheless. They're rule followers. There are people who wanna follow the rules. So if, if we wanna say, hey, like, just do, do good, they'll do it. They'll, they'll do, do those, those things that, that God calls them to do, but... Anyone can do dutiful obedience, but only, but only one transformed by the mercy of God can offer a true obedience from a heart that delights in him. So we have to understand this about obedience. Let's, let's talk about two quick ways that we can know which kind of these obediences we are offering to God. I think Jonah 1 gives us a, a few really good ex examples and indicators, and this is what cold obedience produces. Look, look at the text. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Cold obedience, dutiful obedience, oftentimes produces two things. The first is anger. Like, can I just ask you this morning, deep down within your heart, do you feel anger towards God? 
Do you feel in, in anger towards God? Now, here's what we have said over and over again. Like Psalm 13 is one really great example. We always go back to that. If you feel angry towards God, like God can handle that. You're, you're not dethroning God because of your anger. You're not dethroning God because of your wacky beliefs about him. God is God. He is who he says he is. And he doesn't need your approval to prop him up. But at the same time, if you feel anger towards God, God understands and God sees that. But oftentimes that anger is a result of a cold obedience. It is, it is that God has not come through on his side of the deal. So Jonah says, I did what you told me to do and I knew that you would do it and now I'm really upset. So if this is you, you may be following God with an external dutiful obedience. And hey, listen, we're all prone to this. There's seasons of life where we may be in this and out of this. The second thing that we see that cold obedience may produce is self-pity or a self-absorption. Look, look at verses two through four, how many times Jonah says, uses personal pronouns. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee, for I knew that you are gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, wanting for disaster. Oh Lord, please now take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. What a cold obedience produces is self-pity and self-absorption. External obedience makes us turn inward. In fact, it causes us, listen to this. This is important today because right now you may be feeling like, wow, this is like too much. You're, 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 you're making me feel guilty and shameful. I promise that's not what we're after. Just give it a second. In fact, when external obedience makes us turn inward, it oftentimes causes us to begin feeling a way about ourselves that God doesn't feel towards us. So remember last week when we talked about that the, that the lies, that the, that the lies that you tell yourself that, you, that you're a failure or that, or that you have messed up beyond God's repair or that you're not worthy to be loved, they're not ultimately lies about yourself. What you're doing is you're, is you're proclaiming a lie about God. And so when, when you come to God and you say, I'm not worthy, you can't forgive me, you know what you're doing, right? You're, you're saying that your sin is, is greater than the grace of God. And, and God is looking at that and saying that is, that is not the case. John chapter six, verse 37, you do not have to turn there, but this is what John chapter um, six, verse 37 says. I think it's verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You hear that? I will never cast out. And so ultimately what this kind of disobedience, remember last week it was partial disobedience or delayed disobedience. This week it's, it's, it's maybe, maybe full disobedience, but it's begrudging or dutiful disobedience. But ultimately what this kind of obedience does is it sets us up as a judge over God. It, sets, it puts God on the, on the hot seat and we are placed as the judge over him. We put him on trial, we put his commands on trial, and we insert ourselves as the judge over his commands. And so we just ask this question again, are you angry with the Lord? Do you feel anger towards him? Do you feel a way about yourself that the gospel would actually contradict? That you are one who has been chosen, that you are an instrument of the mercy of God, a recipient of the mercy of God. And so the question here is not, 
only do you see the world the way that God sees the world, but do you see yourself the way that God sees you? Do you see yourself the way that God sees you? Because if you don't, you've set God up to be a liar, is, is what has happened. Let's read verses five through 11. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, is it, better, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perish in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle. As we, as we kind of made the point last week is that in, in relation to God's sovereignty, God also interacts dynamically with the choices and the decisions of his people. And so God is both sovereign and man also has the responsibility to choose what is right. And so God interacts with Jonah in a truly dynamic and, and merciful way here in chapter four, doesn't he? Like, this is, this is really fascinating. If you haven't seen this yet, in spite of Jonah's disobedience and displeasure towards God, God does not stop pursuing Jonah. So that's why I can say confidently that you may be angry with God and God is not going to stop pursuing you. That's with confidence that we can say that. We talked a few weeks ago how it can be hard to pursue someone who doesn't pursue you back. Well, if you're ever pursuing someone who doesn't pursue you back, remember that even when you're angry and you wanna run away from God, God is still going to pursue you. And so God does not stop pursuing Jonah. God surely should have wiped Jonah out by now, right? Like if, if I were God, that's what I would do. Just, man, just wipe him out and move on to the next prophet. Like, I can, I can, use, I can use whoever. God used, God used a whale or a fish. God used a storm. God used a bunch of different ways to, to, to get us to understand who he is. Instead, though, of wiping Jonah out, God sees that Jonah, this is, guys, this is, this is movie work. Like, this is like, this is what the movies get their, their, their stuff from. So instead of wiping him out, God sees that Jonah has perched himself on a hill outside of the city. He has taken his, his, uh, his lawn chair and his cocktail, and he is sitting on the edge of the city up above to, what does it say? Till he should see what should come of the city. Jonah thought, surely they're not gonna, they're not gonna, they're not, they're not gonna stay faithful. Surely they're, they're gonna get wiped out like God has said that they would. But God sees that, God, that Jonah has perched himself on a hill outside the city because he wanted to see the Ninevites completely implode, right? Like they just, 
don't get it. Jonah had shared with the Ninevites, but he did not want to see them spared. He shared with them, but he didn't want to see them spared. And it's there in that frame of mind that God pursues Jonah. Remember, guys, every now and then we're going to take little parentheses and say, like, Jonah's the worst, isn't he? But it's there in that frame of mind that God pursues Jonah. In fact, two times in this chapter, God is just getting after Jonah's heart with, do you do well to be angry? Wives, has your husband ever asked you, like when you're feeling really mad, has your husband ever been like, are you mad? It's not a a good question to ask someone who's angry. Guys, have you ever had a, like one of the things to do in high school was like when we were really ticked off at our friends, like they just, you mad, bro? And I mean, it would just make you more mad. God is, God is not doing this to provoke Jonah in that kind of way. He is trying to provoke something in Jonah, but he is asking Jonah a very important question. Do you do well to be angry? I don't know exactly what he means. Maybe it means like, is this good for your health? <laughs> yeah, I, surely it, it, it means something deeper than that. But, but, but God comes to Jonah in this. And, and, and so what does, what does God do as Jonah's belligerence is on full display? Look at verse six. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah. And then look what it says, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. What a gracious and merciful God. Amen? What a, sorry, sorry. What a gracious and merciful God. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> that Jonah is acting the way that he's acting. Jo- God notices that Jonah is both in physical and emotional mental breakdown. And what does God do? He sends a plant in a, in a moment. He is... It's just a, a quick little, little plug for God being sovereign over creation, that God is sovereign over not only salvation, but sovereign over creation, that a plant that may have taken days or weeks to grow, in a moment, God just props up. And so here's what we must understand about the mercy of God, that whether it's mercy towards the wicked, whether it's mercy towards the religious, that God's heart towards sinners, sufferers, doubters, failures is not one of disgust, but one of invitation. That if you are a sinner, a sufferer, a doubter, if you are a failure, God's heart towards you is not one of disgust, but one of invitation. This has been really challenging for me to understand this week, particularly. I won't get into all the details of it, but man, I witnessed one of the most heartbreaking things that I've ever experienced this week. And it, not to get into the details of the conversation, it was, a, it was, I personally firsthand experienced a man being unfaithful to his wife. And I know that that may hit home to some of you. It hits, it hit home with me in some, in some ways, but But this week on Wednesday, I saw that. And this has been a hard thing for me to understand this week, the feelings that I have felt towards this person, the the, the things, the the emotions, the anger that I have felt is, is I am just disgusted. 
And, and I'm not saying that God isn't disgusted. I, man, God is inviting this person back into the fullness of his joy. And this person believes that they are living a, living a secret that God will reveal. And so this has been a hard thing for me. To, I say that because this has been a hard thing for me to understand this week. Like, it got real. It got, it got real. And, and by, if you're wondering, it's no one here, I hope. But the, but the heart of God, guys, this is what this means. That the heart of God is, is not one of disgust, but one of, one of invitation. So that's what, what this means is, is, is that this person who believes that they're living a lie, that God is, man, God is, is gently inviting them out of their darkness to, to come back into his presence and to live life in the fullness of joy. It's an invitation saying, if you will turn to me, I will show you mercy. I will show you forgiveness and I will show you grace. That's a lot better way than I want to respond. I want to respond with a couple fists, right? This is Jesus coming to us and saying, I want you to experience the fullness of my joy. And so if, if you're feeling beat up, because you've realized that you're offering God only this external, dutiful obedience. This text shows us that God stands over you not in judgment, not with a scowl, but with an invitation. And this is hard for our minds to wrap itself around because, y'all, we know that the justice and the wrath of God is part of who God is. We know that. We preach that. We, we said, if, you're, if you've caught us on a day that you're just like, what about the wrath of God? We've, we've preached it. This is a text about the mercy of God. And so that's where we're gonna sit. God is a father that in our repentance, we can run towards him, not away from him. And so I can't help but see this interaction in relation to the prodigal son in Luke 15. So there you have two brothers, one set up as the rebellious prodigal and another set up as the religiously astute, obedient one. So you can draw parallels between the two brothers, I believe, and Jonah and Nineveh here. So Jonah may be, may be paralleled with the older brother. Nineveh is the, the younger brother, but the, the major parallel is not with the brothers, but the father, right? The, the point of the prodigal son story is not the sons, but the dad. The dad who would receive and accept the son after what he has done to the father, what is it that a parable does from what we understand? A parable is typically defined as, a, as an earthly story that Jesus uses to help us understand a heavenly reality, something deeper about God. And so what is this parable showing us ultimately? Again, it's not about the brothers. In fact, it's not even really should be called the parable of the prodigal son. The Bible doesn't call it the parable of the prodigal son. We did that. If anything, it should be the parable of the merciful father. The father interacts incredibly with these two sons with forgiveness towards the prodigal and with mercy towards the older brother, pursuing them both. You see that at the end of the prodigal son story, the prodigal son is throwing a fit. He's whining because he's welcomed the younger son back in. And the dad's just saying to my older son, hey, everything that I have is yours. This year brother was lost, now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. I'm always with you. He's pursuing the older brother in a way that he has also pursued the younger brother. And so to the very end of this book of Jonah, God is inviting Jonah in to see and understand this about himself. You can see that God is almost consoling Jonah in such a way of just like, man, don't you understand? 
Don't you see that, that I love these people? And so where the text goes in this section is where God has been going the whole book. And so the text indicates, if you look down here, it says um, that, that, uh, that he was exceedingly glad. And then the question that God asked him, that you pity the plant, this text indicates that Jonah felt great relief from the plant. I mean, obviously, right? He'd been like, have you, have you ever sat in the bathtub for too long and like your skin is kind of sensitive and wrinkly? Jonah's been in the bathtub for three days in the belly of the fish. So sun probably doesn't feel great on his skin, does it? Puts the shade up over him. And so of course he's glad. It's just a common grace of the Lord. Then, then God takes away the plant and Jonah and God go at it again. The climax of this story is not in the middle of the story with the fish. Rather, the climax in this story happens in a way that is uncharacteristic of most stories, and it's at the end. The climax of the story happens at the very end of the story, and it's a massive cliffhanger. You realize that this book ends literally with a question mark. The book ends with a question mark. The text indicates that Jonah's heart became so attached and wrapped up in this plant God said, you pity the plant. The, the, the word for that in the original language is a special kind of affection towards the plant. He, he, he loved the plant. He's like, I love this plant. So this is one way that God is pursuing the heart of Jonah, allowing Jonah to experience and feel something at such a deep, personal level so that God can ask him the question in verse 10 and 11. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? God here is gently, mercifully, compellingly inviting Jonah to see the way that God sees and to love the way that God loves. He's saying this is what obedience is is loving the way that I love and seeing the world the way that I see. So God pleads with Jonah and appeals to his own nature of who he is in that he's saying, those wicked Ninevites, I love them. Yeah, I do love them. It's who I am. It's not just like a, it's not just a, a I'm not looking for the Ninevites as plan B, like, who I am is a merciful, loving God who's abounding in, in steadfast love and slow to anger. God says they don't know what they're doing. They can't differentiate between their right hand and their, and their left hand. They can't differentiate between right and wrong. Even their cattle are jacked up, everything. But they are objects of my mercy. They're objects of my mercy. And so this book doesn't really resolve, or does it? That's the question. Does this book resolve? As far as the story goes, no, the story may not resolve the way that we want it resolved. But as far as the purpose of the book goes and the purpose of the book goes, what more do we need to know? What more do we need to know about the nature and the character of God? In his book, Gentle and Lowly, actually have it because we're making a plug today, making a big plug. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland mentions that while the Old Testament refers to God being provoked to anger a number of times, God is never provoked to love. Have you noticed that? Does that, does, does that make sense? That, that several times throughout the Old Testament, God is provoked to, to anger, provoked to wrath. 
do you ever see God being provoked or having his arm bent to love or to show mercy? And so like, that's some of the tension that we feel with this, this mercy and wrath. But, but at, the, at, the, at the base of it is because he doesn't need to be provoked to love because God is love. So yes, he is loving, but he's also merciful. But the Bible doesn't say God is wrathful in a way that it titles him that. Does he show wrath? Yes, but who does it define God as? Love. God is love. In fact, when God reveals himself to his covenant people, how does he reveal them, himself? That I am a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love. I'm abounding in love. And so when when God faces provocations like his people's rebellion and wickedness, you know what abounds for them? Love and mercy. And it is the most natural and characteristic thing that God has, is love and mercy. I wanna read as we close. Dane Ortland, uh, one of the reasons why why I, I recommend him is because he, he pretty much just quotes the Puritans through this whole book, Scripture and the Puritans. And so like, he's not just making stuff up in the 21st century. But this is something that the, the Puritan John Bunyan said about John chapter six, verse 37. And this is, a, this is kind of like a, like a, a metaphorical um, interaction that we might have with God. But I'm a great sinner, says you. I will not cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, says you. I will not cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, says you. I will not cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, says you. I will not cast you out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all of my days, says you. I will not cast you out. But I have sinned against light, says you, I will not cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, says you, I will not cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, says you, I will not cast you out, says Christ. He then goes on to, 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 to highlight something that Bunyan says, where Bunyan knows how we tend to deflect the assurance of Christ no wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand, I've really messed up. In all kinds of ways, I know, God says. You know most of it, I'm sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside of me that is hidden from everyone. I know all of it, God says. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand but I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, God says. The burden is heavier and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear, not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I pray that we understand the mercy of God in a profound, biblical, healthy way. 
that the mercy of God, that God is more ready to show you mercy than you are to receive his mercy. And we all love mercy and grace, right? We all love to be shown mercy and grace. God is even more ready to show you mercy and grace than you are to receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And or we haven't even, didn't even scratch the surface of, <laughs> of what you're saying here in Jonah chapter four. And so, Lord, it's, it's ultimately your spirit anyways that, that draws us and that illumines your word to us. And so, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would do this. Ask your spirit to confirm in us anything that, that, that we may not grasp or understand, that your mercy towards us is, is available and ready, and it is, it is there waiting for us. And so, Lord, would you, would you help us to, to see and understand your mercy in light of, in light of the justice that you have also said that, that is present in you? Lord, may we, may we not in, in any way diminish the fact that you are a God of, of justice. And this is a, a good thing for us because those who are in Christ, your justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Justice and wrath have not gone unsatisfied for the child of God. The justice and the wrath of God has been fully satisfied in Jesus for those who had placed their trust in him. And so may we see the world the way that you see the world. May we love the world the way that you love the world. May we see ourselves the way that you see us. And may we love those around us. There is no one who is too far gone. There is no one outside of the ability of of your hand to save them. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.